At various points in the service, I will read the whole of Revelation chapter 12, but for our scripture reading at this point this morning, I'll just be reading verses one through six. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is God's word to us this morning. Ancient words, ever true. Thank you. 
We never dreamed we would need a whole new choreography for our services, but these are the times in which we live. Let's look to the Lord, our God, in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge that apart from the leading and the grace of your Holy Spirit, we cannot receive the truths that you have written down for us in those ancient words, the words of Scripture. But they are words of life, they are words of hope. And Father, we pray that your Spirit would guide us into the truth, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive. And that having received, Father, you would make your word take root and grow and bear fruit for eternal life in our lives. In this church and in this community, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So some years ago, back when I was in college, actually, I came across a poem which both had the title and opened with the line, Christmas is really for the children. And the verse went on to say, especially for children who like animals, stables, stars, and babies wrapped in swaddling clothes. Then there are wise men, kings in fine robes, humble shepherds, and a hint of rich perfume. And of course, it's kind of true, isn't it? That's the way that many of us have come to celebrate Advent and Christmas. It's often about those kinds of things, about animals and stables, stars and babies. There's some really clever um, satirical videos online that um, talk about the difference between Lutheran Christmas carols, which are all focused on Christ and on Scripture, and Anglican Christmas carols, which often have to do with animals and snow and babies and kings and things like that. And it's not that any of those things are bad. They're okay. But this idea that Christmas is really about that is reflected there. It's reflected in a lot of our traditions. It's reflected in our nativity scenes, where often there's an angel hovering over the nativity. If you saw the email that I sent out yesterday evening, you may have noticed the picture. That, that came from Pastor Matt of a nativity scene with a red dragon perched on the roof of the stable. And that was very intentional because we were told in our scripture this morning that great red dragon was there waiting to devour the child as soon as that child would be born. And we don't think of it. We think of angels, angels singing and, and praising the Lord. But there was these hostile forces that were gathered against him. This idea of Christmas as being about things that appeal to children is often reflected even in the way that so many people think of, well, you know, Christmas is one of those times, maybe one of two, when we really ought to go to church. It's reflected in the fact that for all of the things that we have not been able to do this Christmas and Advent season, the mall Santas are still there and people are still taking their kids and, and sitting between pieces of plastic and socially distant. I can't even imagine what would be appealing about that. But in many ways, we think like this. Christmas is really for the children. Even some of our songs, and I'm, only, I'm just going to pick on one more because I have to. O Little Town of Bethlehem, as one example, ends with the prayer, O Holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And even allowing for a certain amount of artistic license, there are too many theological issues in that stanza alone 
just to, to even deal with them this morning. But for starters, if we ever find ourselves addressing the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer, that's okay. But we ought not ever, not ever, think of him or address him as the little baby Jesus or even the holy child of Bethlehem. As we've noted already, this Advent season, Christmas does remember the time when the Lord Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. But that holy child of Bethlehem grew up. He lived a sinless life under God's law. He died for our sin, taking the penalty, the curse of that law upon himself so that we could be set free. He rose victorious over death and Satan and the grave. He humbled himself. He entered into that state of humiliation, but because he did, God has highly exalted him. Now, when he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord, whom we might address in prayer. Not the holy child, not the little baby Jesus in the manger. Frankly, if we pray to the holy child of Bethlehem, it's probably more idolatry than anything else. The holy child of Bethlehem cannot be born in us. We must be born of him. That's what salvation is. Not to have Jesus born in our hearts somehow, but that we should be born of God's spirit, born of his grace, born again to receive eternal life. And the truth is, as we have seen in our reading so far this morning, Revelation 12 doesn't really lend itself to thoughts of softly falling snow, friendly beasts, little drummer boys and babies who never cry as if. Rather, it speaks of pregnant women crying out in the agony of childbirth. It speaks of great red dragons. It speaks of war in heaven. So while the former is comfortable for us and familiar and pleasant, the latter, while not the Christmas story that we have come to expect, has the distinct advantage of being true. If you happen to be a fan of C.S. Lewis, which... I am, and that spills over sometimes into my preaching. But the reality of what Christmas is might recall some echoes of Christmas as described by the author in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In that story, two brothers, Peter and Edmund, and their sisters, Susan and Lucy, find themselves in this land, Narnia, a land in which at that time it is always winter and never Christmas because of an evil curse that's been placed on it. But with their presence, with their coming into Narnia as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, things begin to change. And even after Edmund, the younger brother, betrays his siblings and goes over to the enemy, the other three are faced with finding their way to the place where they can meet with Aslan. But along the way, a long-delayed Christmas finally arrives, and Father Christmas, portrayed there in the red with the white fur, presents the three children who are faithful 
with gifts. And his gifts, surprisingly, are equipment and weapons for war. See, Aslan, the son of the emperor over the sea, a Christ figure in this story, is on the move. Spring is on its way. The dominion of the white witch is about to fail. But before the end, there will be a battle. And he knows that these children who will be kings and queens in Narnia must be properly equipped. And I think this is really closer to the way that we ought to look at Christmas as well, because Christmas is not really for the children. Christmas really is more of a declaration of total war. I left off reading in Revelation chapter 6, but if we read on from verse 7, we are told, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back and he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and i heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them before them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But, when the, woman, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So maybe not just Christmas in Narnia, which is kind of a children's story itself, but maybe more like we would expect Christmas in Middle Earth with Satan taking the place of Sauron and his minions standing in for the orcs and goblins of Mortar and Orthanc. Not very Christmassy. I know, it's not. But if we consider the text we might have to realize that all of this taken together is nothing less than the good tidings of great joy which the angel said would be for all the people because as mysterious and as complicated as this might appear, all of this, Satan being cast down, the hosts of heaven triumphing over him and over his Followers, all of this is really just the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. While God would have been completely justified, 
absolutely justified in leaving us to ourselves and our sin and to the punishment that we so richly deserved. While he would have been completely justified, leaving us in the hands of Satan himself, he didn't. He loved us and he sent his only begotten son into this world so that the world through him might be saved. Not so that we could sing nice songs about how a little child shall lead them. The Lord of heaven and earth will lead us. Two things as we move deeper into the chapter, and these are more interpretive matters. First, we can't let ourselves get bogged down in the details as we carry on in this study of Revelation. If we try to be too specific in our understanding of these visions, which after all are visions, if we start wondering, for example, why 1260 days in verse 6 and not 1259 or 1261, then we start to drift off on rabbit trails of speculation and we never get anywhere. The second thing, and this applies not only to Revelation 12, but to the whole book, we begin with what we know, not with what we don't. One illustration of that is found in the fact that most commentaries on millennial or, or on, on Revelation are categorized under one of three or four headings. There's premillennial, there's postmillennial, and there's amillennial. But that comes from one little section in Revelation chapter 20, which we really aren't certain exactly what's being said there, but if we start with what we don't know and then try to work our way through the book, we end up kind of mystified and confused. So we start with what we know. One of the reasons why people are frightened and troubled by what they find in this book is that there is so much speculation around these prophecies and vision, and speculation very often leads to fear and not to faith. So we start with what we know. Because if we start with what we don't know, together with a very unhealthy dose of the current headlines, suddenly locusts with faces of men and, and hair like women and teeth like lion's teeth look like a first century description of a Huey battle helicopter circa 1972, firing missiles out the front and spewing nerve gas from the tail. So we don't start with what we don't know. We start with what we know. We start with those things specifically that are interpreted for us in the text itself. Consider verse 3. John wrote, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And here, too, we could go with some of the commentators and start speculating about the seven heads and the ten horns. There's actually probably something to that, but we'll get to it later on. So let's not do that. Instead, look at verse 9. And the great dragon, the great dragon from the earlier verses was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So if we were wondering at all about the identity of this great red dragon in the early verses of Revelation chapter 6, we need wonder no more. Who is the dragon? He is none other than that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And for now, it's enough to know that this chapter, 
which really summarizes the whole book, informs us that for all the different faces that he might wear in the course of the story, the main antagonist, the antagonist who is behind all of the other antagonists who are gonna show up in the book of Revelation is none other than our old adversary, the devil himself. But we can learn more from verse nine. The dragon is that ancient serpent. And that's an intentional reference. That ancient serpent should take us all the way back to Genesis 3, where we are told of the first confrontation between this great dragon and the human race. We read in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty. Yes, that ancient serpent. He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, which, sidebar, free information, that's always how he works, always. You find it in Christian books and publications this day where he comes along saying to the church, did God actually say, I know, I know that you know, the church has believed that that's what God said for something like 2,000 years now, but did God really say that? Or have we been getting it all wrong and now we need to look at it differently? That is how Satan works. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So by identifying the dragon, we've also come close to the identity of the woman. Now I'm not saying that the woman in Revelation 12, the one who is clothed with the sun and with her feet on the moon and a crown of stars around her head is specifically Eve and it's not specifically Mary. Remember, John sees the woman in terms of a vision, in terms of a sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And this is a cosmic sign. It's too big to be any particular woman, but it really includes them all. It includes Eve and Sarah, Rachel, Rahab, Ruth, on down to Mary, the Virgin of Bethlehem, each one of these women from the people of God taking her place in the story that God set in motion when he cursed the serpent, saying, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's not some sort of a weird justification for why many women are afraid of snakes, Um, nor is it some sort of a weird logical conclusion that because I am afraid of snakes, go where you want. It's not true. That's not at all what's being talked about. God says to that ancient serpent, the devil, the great red dragon, I will put enmity, I will create a state of war between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, literally between your seed and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word bruise here in Genesis is this Hebrew word when Jesus bruises the head, the rush, the authority of the serpent, he does so by grasping and crushing in his hand. So in this primitive, primeval garden, God says, war has been declared and it's gonna be ongoing. And the dragon in Revelation 12 then is simply doing what the dragon has done since the beginning of time. 
It was that same dragon who incited Cain to murder his brother Abel, who took a shot at Isaac and Jacob in Goliath and under so many other guises. That dragon tried to take David out of the picture, seeking to eliminate the line of the Messiah at every opportunity. And in this Christmas season, we find him wearing a Herod suit, waiting to devour the child when he is born, ordering the soldiers to Bethlehem to murder every boy under the age of two in an attempt to kill the one who had been born king of the Jews. Again, not very Christmassy, but this is the story. Because given all of the above, the child spoken of in Revelation 12, the offspring of the woman who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron can be none other than Jesus, who is called the Christ. So we see our characters now lined up for us. This book is gonna be a story about the warfare that exists between the dragon and the Son, the Anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, between God and the host of evil. Everything we see in this book needs to be seen in that light because Jesus, who is called the Christ, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. If there was any question left, it would be answered by that reference to Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That psalm is applied to Jesus in the resurrection from the dead in the New Testament. Jesus is the son, begotten by the father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, pastor and friend from long ago used to always say, and when the Son of God rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he did not forget to ask. And what will he do with them? Verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But we have to keep going. It's clear, though, that this summation of the book of Revelation given in chapter 12, this summation of all of human history as it happens, tells the story of cosmic-level spiritual warfare between that ancient serpent and the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. It was played out east of Eden shortly after humanity was exiled from the garden. And it played out again after the 40 days in the wilderness where Satan, seeing that Jesus was hungry and weak, humanly speaking, came to him to tempt him. It played out in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, three or so years later and three days after that again on a hill outside of Jerusalem that was known as Golgotha or the Hill of the Skull. And this war not the end of the world. This war is the subject of the prophecies and the visions that are given in the book of Revelation. And quickly now, just one more thing. That war has been won. Let me say that again. That war has been won. Look at verses 7 to 10 again. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. But do not miss verse 10. 
in the midst of this, John writes, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And once more, for emphasis, now. Not thousands of years from now, not the day after tomorrow. Now have come the power, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. And when did this happen? Well, again, we would be making a mistake to try to stick a pin in the timeline and say on this day, at this exact moment, but there was that day when the 72 that Jesus had sent out returned after completing their ministry assignments saying, Lord, it was amazing. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. But of course, Jesus was not surprised. He turned to them and said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but that's all connected, how they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, how the people of God engaged in this warfare and overcome Satan. Further, Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It was the same refrain that was the last recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus came to his disciples and said, You know this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the book of Daniel, we see this vision of the Son of Man ascending to the throne of God in the clouds. And the Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom and a dominion and authority that will never be broken. All authority in heaven and on earth. That's all authority, not most of it. It's all of it, it's all authority in heaven, and it is all authority on earth, and it has been, past tense, given to Christ. It was on that basis, on that foundation, that he told the church, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, which would be a really scary prospect if said authority had not been given to Christ. And the loud voice declared, now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, which is important for us to understand. Because when the great red dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, was thrown down to earth, and when he was prevented from harming the woman who stands in for the church of God's people under both the old and the new covenant, he was thrown to the earth, he went after her, she was protected and preserved, and he became furious with her. He became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, means that he, while he is a defeated enemy, he continues to fight on. And specifically, he fights against us. He fights against the rest of the woman's offspring, the people of God who keep his commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus. So there is a call here. 
as we have seen before in Peter's letter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the world we live in. If you expect this world to love you, think again, because your devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We have a call here, but we also have promises. And we've heard these promises over and over again in the letters to the churches. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So we are in a fight we can't escape it. We can't pretend that it's not going on. But we are on God's side in this. And it's a fight that we can win because it's a fight that has already been won. And what do you have to do? Well, you saw it in Peter. Resist him. Resist the devil. Resist, resist that adversary. Firm in your faith steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Or as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I just want to say, because this is confusing sometimes, sometimes we quote that verse as if to say we need not concern ourselves at all with people and what people might do to us, our battles with the demonic hosts in the spiritual realm. Well, the second part of that is true. But I think I mentioned when I was talking about the church at, at Smyrna, if I remember correctly, that Satan and the demons didn't come knocking on the doors of the Christian's home to drag them off and throw them in jail. That would be the Romans. That would be flesh and blood human beings who came and arrested them and persecuted them. But what they needed to see was that behind those flesh and blood human beings were principalities and powers, this sinister force that was seeking to devour them. They also needed to see that they could be armored in the very armor of God himself. So even as the children in the Narnia story were equipped with weapons and, and equipment for the battle to come, so we too are equipped. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Sorry, I went the wrong way there. To stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. To summarize, and I hope you caught this, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand. 
against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Just stand. Don't compromise, don't retreat, don't fall back. Don't give ground, just stand. Be faithful. If you have to be faithful unto death, be faithful unto death, and he will give you a crown of life. Hold your ground. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Be faithful. As Jesus said to the saints at Thyatira, only hold fast what you have till I come. Hold fast. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, now listen to what he says in this promise. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. To the saints in the first century, Jesus says, just overcome, keep my works to the end and you will be seated with me on my throne and together we will rule over the nations. And again, not very Christmassy one might conclude, and yet in all of this, again, we have good tidings of great joy because ultimately Christmas is about the gospel. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It is at the heart of the gospel, and the gospel is ultimately about the kingdom, about the dominion, about the rule of the one who came to reconcile a broken and fallen world to the God who made it. When was this war won? When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. And in Revelation chapter 12, we heard that loud voice saying, now, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And just before, in Revelation chapter 11, which we will come back to eventually, that very familiar passage the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Merry Christmas. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you thankful that you have prevailed that the outcome was never really in question. The war is won. We come to you thankful that you have equipped us to take a stand, proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in your armor, and Lord, able to stand against the schemes of our adversary, the devil. We come to you thankful that this season where we often focus on a little child in a manger is not just about the beauty of a little child resting on a bed of hay, but about the amazing fact that you have invaded this world and have overcome the enemy and have provided victory to all those who look to you in faith. And we come to you today, Father, believing in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.